everyone, and welcome to episode 16.5 of the Dicey Review Podcast. That's right, it's another episode coming at you live. Uh, and tonight, it is not we, it is I. Uh, it is, <laughs> it's a .5 episode, which means that uh, this is one that I do um, kind of solo in between some of our episodes so that... Uh, so that we can uh, have some more content for you to listen to. And actually, I have quite a bit to talk about tonight, uh, so I think it should be somewhat entertaining. The other reason I wanted to do a solo episode is because um, I it's, it's at the point where um, it's, it's July, right? Uh, it's almost August, so it is more than halfway through the year, and I have still not put out my top 10 games of 2017. And the reason that I didn't do that is because I have not played all of the games in 2017 that I had initially set out to play. I will say, however, I have played through enough to where I think I can make a somewhat informed uh, decision on the games that I enjoyed the most out of, uh, out of last year's uh, crop of amazing games. One thing I will say right off the bat, I never got Gloomhaven to the table. I didn't do it. I'm sorry, I did not do it. I was unable to get that game to the table. So that game will not be in my top 10 currently. Now, I I am in the process of trying to make time to learn that game and set it up and, uh, and, and get it to the table. And if I do, uh, and when I do, rather, I should say, I, I may, uh, you know, retroactively put it in my top 10. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes because it actually, a lot goes into, you know, and I'll discuss this more uh, in my top 10 list, but but a lot more than just how good the game is and how good the design is goes into what makes a game um, uh, one of the best games of the year, in my opinion. A lot more goes into it, marketing, how it plays, who it's for when it'll hit the table, things like that. So anyway, uh, we will have that as our AP topic. I'll have my top 10 games of 2017 list. We're going to have uh, some some news and new game releases that we're, that I'm excited about. And then obviously we will have a uh, tale from the tabletop as well. Um, and, and speaking of tales from the tabletop, let's just, let's just get right into it with our tale from the tabletop. Howdy folks, mosey on up to the fire. It's time for Tales from the Tabletop, the segment where we tell you about the stories that have kept us entertained in our most recent gaming sessions. Recently, my family and I uh, took a trip down to the Frio River, where we are Texans. We live um, in the very bottommost state uh, of the uh, of the U.S., um, although I don't know if that's technically true. I think maybe Florida dips out further. I'm not sure. I I have no facts. I have no facts on this podcast. Uh, but anyway, we are Texans, and so we live uh, close to a lot of really great uh, rivers and uh, some some nature and wildlife. And we decided to head down to the Frio River to have a fun uh, weekend. And anytime I go anywhere. 
um, you had better bet your bottom dollar that I'm carrying a pack of games with me and not just a few, probably eight to 10 games. Realistically, we'll play like one, maybe, or two if we're (laughs) wildly lucky. But I always carry eight to 10 games with me because I mean, you know, you need to be prepared for any type of situation. I've learned this, okay? So I I took some games down to uh, down to the river with us, and I knew that we were going to have some younger players, and also some players that just weren't super into heavy, deep, complex uh, games. So I took uh, the three nominees for um, the Kinderspiel Award this year that we that we discussed on our prior episode. I took the um, the Shaky Manor game. Um, the Dragon's Breath game and Emojito, which is, uh, you know, kind of probably the most grown up out of the kids' games. Emojito is is a party game where you make funny faces and uh, to express emotion and use sounds and things like that. So I took those three games with us, and honestly, those were the games we we got all three to the table multiple times, um, which was great because my daughter has gotten she's about two and a half. And she's gotten to the point where she really enjoys playing the dragon game that she calls it. It's called Dragon's Breath, but she, you know, we've played it like 10 or 12 times. She said, you want to play the dragon game? Let's play the dragon game. So we got that one to the table a lot, but we also got uh, a mojito to the table. And this was one of the ones that I was really interested to play because uh, my daughter kind of understands it a little bit. We play like a, uh, you know a modified version for her where we, where we, you know, make a funny face and then turn over just a couple of cards and see if she can pick which face we made. And if we, you know, if she does, we cheer and she has a, you know, she just busts out in this massive smile. Well, we were playing the real game with everybody else. Um, and my dad is, um, you know, if you, if you know my dad, he's, or if you've, so I'll, I'll describe a little bit about him. He's hilarious. My dad is very funny, um, super sarcastic, but he's actually very good at, uh, these types of games, like expressing emotion and, um, and you know, doing (laughs) kind of, we found out he was very good at this game. Uh, but, but he was also very entertaining. Uh, my mom really enjoyed shaky manner and she did really well at that game, but my dad really, uh, I don't know how much he enjoyed Imojito, but he did really well. So anyway, the, the, the funniest thing about Imojito to me is there are spaces that you will be on where you can only use faces. You can only make facial expressions to show emotion. There are some spaces where you can only use sounds to express emotion, which when my, when my dad first heard about that, he got, you know, he kind of rolled his eyes and was like, oh, I have to make a sound to express an emotion. So we... Uh, he had never done the sounds at this point. He had only made faces and he was already a bit uh, wary of having to make just faces uh, or just, just a sound to express this emotion. And so we were, you know, we were trying to say, well, you know, it'll, it'll make sense. Just draw the next card and let's see what, let's see what comes up. And, um, he, he drew the first card off of the deck and, you know, very basic rundown of the game. You're supposed to look at a card it shows some picture of this creature or a person or something making a face and uh, and expressing some type of an emotion. And you're supposed to replicate that to the other players and let everybody know which card to pick. And then you shuffle up six more and deal out, you know, seven cards. And we, you know, the other players are supposed to pick which card you, you imitated. Um, so he turns over the top card and he's like, oh, oh, well, I got this. This is easy, you know. 
And, uh, and we were all kind of surprised because he had been, he had been, you know, a bit wary of this, of having to make a sound like he was worried about it. Um, but, but he was, he was fairly confident, you know? And so, um, so we had to kind of check the rules on how to handle it. So there's, there was this little bit of this buildup of, of, you know, this time before my dad was going to, uh, make his reveal his big sound, you know? So we, we had kind of built this up in our heads and I don't know why we did, but like, there was just kind of this tension growing <laughs> of my dad is going to make the sound and he's, and you know, you know, he was, he was very confident. And so we were really, we were really kind of, um, expectant that you're, you know, excited that, that, uh, that he was about to make this sound. And for some reason, um, he, you know, there was all this buildup and then he, he said, okay, are you guys ready? You know, we were all supposed to close our eyes because whenever they're just making sounds in the game, you close your eyes. And he goes, all right, are you, are you ready? You ready? And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we all close our eyes. There's all this buildup. And my dad lets out this sound. And I say, lets out. It was, it was very subtle. <laughs> he comes out with this weird robot animatronic witch laugh. <laughs> that sounded something like like that like it was so subtle and it was so unexpected after all this buildup that we just we lost it I mean we absolutely crying tears laughter trying to process all of this information at once after all of this buildup like he was going to make this grandiose you know sound and then he just lets out this weird little witch laugh and for some reason the parody was just so funny and everybody at the table just lost it um <laughs> and in fact i'm gonna i'm gonna try and i'm gonna try and edit in the video i my wife was taking a video right after he made the sound we didn't catch the sound but she caught the after effects of how hard it made us laugh so i'm gonna try and edit that in right now <laughs> But for some reason, you know, it was just, it was so funny whenever we, whenever we heard this, this little weird laugh that he did and we all guessed the card. I mean, whenever he, whenever he turned over all of the other cards, like there was this one, there was this one card that kind of looked like, you know, his mouth had, he had, he had, you know, kind of moved his mouth off to the side in a weird way to make this weird little laugh. And so we all picked the right card, but it was just so unexpected and so funny. Um, and we all had a great time playing that game and it's just, you know, just further illustrates how amazing tabletop games are and, and just the memories they create and, uh, you know, just kind of how they draw people in. So anyway, it was a, it was a really, really funny, really funny moment in our, in our gaming experience. We had a great time. We were down at the river. Like I said, we, we got to kind of explore. It's the spring fed river down in South Texas. Um, that is just, uh, just beautiful, beautiful. It's down in the hill country. Um, which is, if you don't know Texas, there's this area down in the south around Austin and uh, the capital of the of the state where the, it's very hilly and mountainous. Um, and uh, it's really pretty. And, and we got to spend some time down there and, and games were a, were a good part of it. So um, anyway, we had a good time. But let's move on to what's happening. Welcome to What's Happening, the segment where we discuss the news and events from the industry that we love so dearly. All 
right, so the news in gaming. We're going to be talking a little bit about some of the things that are coming up. And and some of these stories, uh, if you listen to our last episode of the podcast, we didn't get through all of the news stories. Um, uh, as I said, we kind of had to cut it short because we talked for so uh, long about the Spiel des Jahres nominees, uh, both the, you know, not only the, the family weight games, but the enthusiast and the kids games. We talked about all of them and kind of really did a deep dive. And I, I, I figured it would take a while, but I didn't think it would take as long as it did. So we had to kind of cut the news short. But one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, uh, well, a couple of things I really wanted to talk about is first and foremost, um, there is a there's a game coming out, and I'll be talking about this game in detail, um, a little bit in more detail as, as far as I, you know, as much as I know about it in our, uh, in our Roll the Dice segment where we talk about what, you know, the games that we're excited about. But... Um, so Red Raven Games is coming out with a game called Megaland, and it's supposed to be out, uh, let's see, fall of 2018, so I'm not sure exactly what month that is, but it's supposed to be coming out near the end of the year, 2018, and it is a game that's exclusive to Target, um, and, and this is really interesting to me for a number of reasons. First and foremost, Red Raven Games um, is what I would consider a true hobby company, uh, hobby gaming company, um, just because Ryan Lockett is the, uh, is the owner and, and designer of, uh, most of the red, well, he's the owner of Red Raven games and the designer of most of the games that come out from Red Raven. I think they've released a few games that aren't from them, uh, aren't from his, his mind, but you know, he's the, he's the one man show. Uh, he does all of the illustration, the artwork, the publishing, the design, um, you know, he's the guy at conventions. He's kind of a, a Renaissance man of board games, but, uh, Red Raven has kind of been, um, known as a true, um, kind of like a, you know, a, a, a hobby, a hobby company, right? It, they don't do mass market stuff. They do smaller, smaller print runs. Uh, they do Kickstarters and it's, uh, you know, they do exclusive type games. They're very narrative. A lot of his games, uh, and, and the artwork, the worlds that he creates are just beautiful. Um, his art style is, is some of my favorite art in board gaming right now. Um, either, either, you know, his, his art or, you know, Vincent Dutre's art or, you know, tool, you know, someone, someone like that. Those are kind of my, my top artists right now, but Ryan Lockett has a very unique art style. That's, that's just beautiful and so whimsical and fun. If you see the cover of a game that Ryan Lockett has drawn and illustrated, you know, that, you know, it immediately. I mean, he's that type of an artist. Um, but he's coming out with a game called Megaland and it's going to be released in target stores. Um, and this is something that I think is really interesting. I've seen a few, uh, a few, companies start to release things um, exclusively in Target as far as tabletop games are concerned. Um, you know, you have a game recently from Days of Wonder that came out that I bought and played. It's a lot of fun called Ticket to Ride New York that um, Days of Wonder released exclusively to Target. Um, and it'll be exclusive for a while. I think I think after, a, you know, an extended, you know, a period of time that was agreed upon by these companies that will come out to hobby stores as well. But for a while, it's going to be exclusive to Target. And, um, you know, Ticket to Ride New York was kind of surprising that they were going to do that at Target, but not not as surprising because Ticket to Ride games have been in Target for a while. But Megaland was, um, was very surprising to me that Ryan Lockett was able to lock down an, exclu an exclusivity um, 
contract with Target because uh, that's a really big deal for a, a hobby company, uh, especially a hobby company the size of Red Raven Games. They're, you know, they're probably a, a medium-sized uh, board game company as far as the hobby market is concerned. But, um, you know, an, an exclusive deal with Target is a is a guarantee for a very big order. Basically, you know, you're talking tens of thousands of games that Target will order. And that is uh, is a really awesome, very big development as far as our industry is concerned. In, in my opinion, I think that it's uh, amazing for for Ryan and the and the company. Um, and the other the other reason that I'm really excited about this this deal is it's going to get a Ryan Lockett game in Target. Um, and you know, there are really great games in Target. There, you know, Codenames is in Target. I've seen Splendor, Ticket to Ride, Catan. Um, those are all very solid games, but it's just going to be another, um, another amazing designer that has another hobby game in a big box store. And I don't know if this is going to be an in-depth, really meaty, crunchy game, you know, like some of his, some of Ryan's other, uh, games have been, but at the end of the day, he's a great designer and he's going to have games in target and somebody may be drawn in by his amazing artwork pick the game up and, uh, you know, get a really good game on their hands that will develop a, a hobby that they, you know, that they never knew existed. Um, so I'm, I'm really a fan of these types of games coming out in, in Target, in big box stores, because Target is doing very well financially. They're not having any trouble. Um, and the other stores that, that games are being marketed in, like Barnes & Noble and previously Toys R Us, are, are kind of having some difficulty. So... Um, I'm always very excited to see games get, uh, you know, of that caliber get put into Target and Walmart and places like that, because it just means more and more games in the hands of, uh, of casual consumers, which at the end of the day will create more and more fans of our hobby. So uh, I'm very excited about uh, Target's recent, um, you know, foray into tabletop gaming. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing and I hope it continues to grow and expand because, you know, a, a player like Target growing this, this hobby uh, industry can only be good for, for us as gamers. So very excited about Megaland coming out exclusively to Target and I hope it does really, really well. Um, very excited for the, the people over at, at Red Raven Games. So another fun news story that I wanted to talk about is WizKids is going to offer a Betrayal at House on the Hill upgrade pack. So this is, this is one of those news stories that is probably um, <laughs> not going to catch the eye of many people, but to me, Whenever I saw this, I was instantly pumped. I was so pumped. Because if you have ever played a game, played the game Betrayal at House on the Hill, which is also another game that you can buy at Target, uh, ironically, if you have played that game, you have been subject to, you've been subjected to, I should say, the atrocious components of that game. I That game has been out for years and years and years, and for some reason they have never figured out or never taken the time to solve the terrible component issue. You have these little player boards that represent your characters and you have to put clips on them to show your character's stats, like you know your sanity and your health and your speed and things like that. Well, these clips famously fall off and slip around uh, and move all over the place. It's just terrible. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll look down at your player board or your little, your little character token 
and you're like, wait, where, where was my speed? I don't think I was there. You know, it's just, it was awful. It's, it's always been awful. So, uh, WizKids is going to offer, uh, a solution to that. <laughs> they are, they are basically going to, um, offer a, uh, an upgrade kit in September of 2018 this year that, um, players going to be able to buy that are going to have six new stat trackers, um, and, and some upgraded dice as well for the game that are going to um, basically replace the basic characters in the game. So you're going to have these double-sided character cards just like the original, um, but in between these character cards are going to be roller rolling stat tracking wheels. Um, you know, with some with some new upgraded art, like I said, the the jazzy new dice. It's just um, it looks really cool. Um, and and I, I really it's long overdue that somebody comes out with an upgrade for uh, for betrayal at House on the Hill. And I haven't looked um, I haven't really looked through the Board Game Geek Guild at solutions to solving the you know the terrible component thing. I know my brother, uh, I know David has has said in the past that he just uses um, little mini paper clips in different colors to solve the uh, the clip issue, and that works out really well. But you know, it's just it's it's always better if you're playing a game if you have kind of some some nicer components that make you feel like you're playing a you know more of a premium experience or whatever. It really does the tactile nature of upgraded and and quality components really does add um, to gameplay. So I'm really excited to see this upgrade pack coming out. I don't know how much it's going to cost. Um, if it's anything like some of the other upgrade things that I've seen from WizKids as far as like, you know, the Agricola expansions and things like that, that added the minis, I'm expecting it anywhere, uh, you know, to be anywhere between 15 to 20 bucks. Um, and I'm hoping that it's not much more than that. It's some, it's some, uh, it's, uh, I think eight dice and, uh, six new, six new player cards. So it may, yeah, it actually may be more than that, depending on just from those components, it might be 25 bucks, but you know, either way, whatever that, whatever that cost is, it should be low enough. And I'm hoping it's under 20, but it should be low enough to where if you really love this game, as much as a lot of people do, it'll be worth it to you to upgrade that experience and, and continue to have, a, um, you know, great, great player components into the future. So just a couple things I wanted to talk about from uh, from the last show that I was really really excited about uh, when I heard those things coming. So uh, that is our uh, our news segment, and we're going to go ahead and move on to roll the dice. Roll the Dice, the segment where we discuss the games that might be worth your money, and more importantly, your time. Alright, so Roll the Dice. We're going to be talking about games that we're excited about that are coming out, or Kickstarter projects that we think uh, are worth backing, and today I have uh, both of those things, both of those things to talk about. Um, basically, uh, the 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 first one I want to talk about that I'm really excited about is a game called Heroes of Terranoth. So um, Terranoth is the fantasy setting of Rune War, uh, Rune Wars, rather. Um, this, which is kind of this um, world that Fantasy Flight has come up with. So the the big player in the fantasy uh, realm, the fantasy market, is Dungeons and Dragons. You have this 
you know, the, these, these worlds and all this lore and backstory that has been created with Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons. But Terranoth is this other realm that Fantasy Flight has created and, um, and the, you know, that, that has its own backstory and its own lore and has been going on for a while. Um, but basically they're, they're releasing a new card game um, in that universe, the Heroes of Terranoth, and it is basically a reworked uh, version of Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. Um, so if you have followed Fantasy Flight uh, in the past, they recently lost their licensing rights with uh, um, with uh, Warhammer. So, um, you know, basically the Games Workshop stuff where, um, you know, they had all these games out that that had that IP and things like that and, and had those had those themes. Warhammer Quest was one of those games that had the the Games Workshop theme. And it was a it was a wonderful game that kind of died on the vine because um, they basically had um, you know this deal happen where they lost all the rights to these to these games workshop IPs. And this game was one of the was one of the ones that got stuck kind of in between. Um, people were really fans of it, but you, you know, you only had one, you had the base game, which included a few scenarios, a few quest lines that you could go on and these two little mini character expansions that came out. And that was it. Um, you basically, after that you were done. And, you know, once you played through those campaigns, uh, there really wasn't much else in the, in the game to follow. Well, so they have reworked, um, they have reworked this game and have basically released it again with their own branding on it so that they can continue in this, this, uh, you know, expanding this game because it's one of those that people would love to come back and play again and again and again. And it was an awesome game. You know, the, um, the Warhammer quest card game was amazing. It was basically a, uh, a dungeon crawl RPG type game uh, with decks of cards and some cardboard components and dice. It was, it was a lot of fun and you had characters that you controlled that were, you know, your standard fantasy characters that would um, have abilities that you could use. And it had a really neat combat system and just kind of a, um, you know, gave you, gave you a really cool feel um, for uh, if, you know, if you were looking for that dungeon crawl type experience, but something that wasn't, um, you know, heavy on the setup side or didn't take four hours or anything like that. Um, and, and basically this is going to kind of follow that, kind of follow that framework. It's going to allow, um, solo play up to four players and it's a co-op game. Um, and the base box is going to have eight missions and it's going to be set in the land of steel on Minara. Um, and I don't know enough about the, the world of, um, uh, of uh, Rune Wars or anything like that, uh, the Terranoth uh, world to to know kind of uh, you know what the uh, what the lore is or kind of how this is going to tie into storylines. But I'm really excited to learn about it, um, you know, because basically it's it's set to take you know play times are going to be set anywhere between 45 minutes uh, to an hour hour and a half somewhere like that so you can kind of go through this piece by piece by piece through these eight missions and learn a little bit about a campaign and i know that they're already going to have expansions in the works and things that you can kind of continue these storylines um, and and this is going to have a lot of the same role-playing uh, themes and tropes that you have uh, that you had in the Warhammer Quest game. Um, you can have your your standard uh, tank type characters, healing type characters, ranged um, scout characters. 
Um, and then basically from there, you're gonna be able to go into different classes and uh, you know upgrade and gain experience and abilities and equipment that are gonna help later on in these campaigns. And um, you know there, there's going to be the same type of system. One of the coolest things about Warhammer Quest was each character had four different cards that they could use. And on your turn, you would turn your cards over, or kind of tap them, which you can't really use that, but you would exhaust these cards and then they would do an action and then they would stay exhausted until you took a certain action that would rest you and then reset all of your, your cards. So it was this really cool um, action selection system in, in the game and it's going to have that same type of um, same type of system where you can choose between attacking, resting, exploring, and aiding. Um, and then you can use dice to modify kind of your success with these actions that you take. So um, uh, this game seems like it's going to have a lot of the same elements, but but be very uh, be you know kind of different in a few ways that seem seem really cool. So um, it's it's currently available for pre-order. Um, and I don't know, let's see if we can find out when it is coming out. Pa, 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 pa. I don't see, I don't see an, a, a release date, but I'm assuming it's going to be sometime Q3 or Q4 of 2018. Um, you know, probably Gen Con time or, or after. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think, um, the great thing about these living, these little, uh, living card games with, with, uh, Fantasy Flight is the base box is usually, you know, $30 or $40. And for the amount of content that you're going to get in that box, I, I think it's pretty worth it, honestly. So, um, if you're interested in in dungeon crawls, if you like games that you can play solo or uh, you know work really well at two, um, this game, uh, you know the previous version of of Heroes of Terranoth, a Warhammer Quest adventure card game was great for that, and I'm assuming that this game is going to be um, even better for that because if one if there's one thing that Fantasy Flight does well, it is streamlining games and releasing them as new versions. So this has me really excited about. Um, about the future of this this kind of game system and storyline. So um, the next game that I want to talk about is a game that is older, uh, that is being re-released on Kickstarter. It's a game called Snowdonia. Um, so I don't know a ton about Snowdonia, honestly. I have never um, I've never played the game. I haven't uh, <laughs> looked up um, you know gameplay videos uh, on the game because it's been uh, kind of off my radar, but recently due to um, kind of picking up uh, one of the games that I'm going to talk about here in a second, Ticket to Ride New York, I've been getting back into train games. Uh, and some of the some of our buddies that are at our game night that we go to recently um, have played have played some train games with us. We got to play basically the precursor to Railways of the World, and I've gotten to play Steamrollers in the past few months, which is a great roll and write um, uh, pick up and deliver train game. And so I've, I've kind of been looking for some really solid train games to play every now and again. Uh, and I have ticket to ride, uh, Europe and I have ticket to ride New York, which is not technically a train game. It's a taxi game, but, but I like that route building and, and the kind of the mechanics and the pick up and deliver and some of the other train games. I like those mechanics. So I'm really interested in Snowdonia. Basically, Snowdonia is supposed to be um, uh, kind of a, a early 1800 um, uh, setting in Wales, in the British Isles, where you are basically, um, you know, carving out your railway uh, through the mountainside of, of uh, Wales. And it's, uh, so actually the Snowdonia is actually named after a, a region of Northwest Wales, um, 
that is very that is very rocky and mountainous. Um, and it was originally released in 2012, and I never had a chance to play it. But they're they're coming out with a um, a, a deluxe upgraded version on Kickstarter. Um, and it's going to be like a big box because apparently Snowdonia has all of the, has all of these um, scenarios that you can play through, um, and and throughout the years a lot of different scenarios got released, I guess, to create uh, more to to make the game more and more interesting and fresh. And this new deluxe master set is going to include all of the scenarios that have been released previously. A new scenario that's being designed or being released by the designer, and. Um, a ton of other of other goodies. Uh, it's going to have a much bigger box, a, a custom insert, a large deluxe board, um, tons of custom wooden components, promo cards. You know, it's supposed to be kind of this really amazing upgraded game. So um, all of that included in the base box has me really excited because I'm I'm looking for more train games that I can play um, that that you know, my game groups will like and my, my wife will like. So, uh, hopefully this one, hopefully this one is as good as people have, have said it is. I've heard very good things from the heavy cardboard podcast on this one and, and, and other people as well that, that are really big fans of the game. So, um, that is, uh, Snowdonia. I'm really excited about that. Uh, the next game that I wanted to talk about is Megaland. So this is one of the, this is the one that we talked about in the news, uh, that is being released exclusively to Target. And this one, um, I, I wanted to briefly talk about the mechanics of the game. So basically, like I was saying, it's going to have the same look and feel of uh, the Ryan Lockett games of the past. But this one is going to be uh, kind of a more mainstream uh, style game from what from what we've seen. Um, it's going to be basically kind of a push-your-luck game that's set in a video game universe where you're trying to like fight monsters and uh, build up your world and kind of expand your influence. Um, and it's going to play from two to five players. And basically, you're going to be able to get these different coins that you can use to do a number of different things. And it, and it's, uh, you know, kind of like a, you know, based on how you push your luck, you're going to get more and more coins that are going to allow you to do things like build bowling alleys or arcades or even go deeper into um, kind of the, the, the video game levels. Um, you're going to be able to improve your character, do things like that. But it is a push your, push your luck game. Um, so if you keep on pushing and pushing, you're going to come home with nothing. Uh, and, and at the end of the game, basically the player with the most coins is going to win. And I'm assuming, you know, without seeing a ton of kind of gameplay or how the game works that, you know, the, the different upgrades and things that you build in your little video game world are going to provide you, um, kind of an engine to get more and more coins. Uh, so has, you know, some engine building push your luck aspects that I really, um, you know, I love push your luck. I love uh, engine building games and kind of uh, developing the most efficient upgrades and things like that to get more and more points. And that kind of sounds like like what this game is as well. So I'm really excited about Megaland, and I'm um, I want to I want to kind of research it more before I get it. Um, but I'm I'm finding more and more as I as I kind of play games and collect games and things like that that um, you know those light to medium games that hit the table a lot you know, you really get a lot of mileage out of games like that. Games like Azul, games like Ticket to Ride, games like, um, gosh, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, not a tough, you know, Splendor and games like that, that, that just hit the table quite a bit, um, are really valuable to have, uh, and, and games that, that, are, that you are going to play quite a bit. Um, you know, so I'm excited about Megaland for that possibility. It may kind of fill that niche for me, um, 
where, you know, I can kind of get it to the table. It's not too heavy. It's not too complex. It's something that my wife will enjoy. It's something that my friends and family uh, will still feel like they're getting a good game experience. So I'm hoping to check that one out and that it'll be really good. Um, and, and in that line of game, in that line of thinking, the next one that I wanted to talk about, the last one that I wanted to talk about for the Roll the Dice segment is Ticket to Ride New York. When I initially put this game on my list, it was... Um, it was still upcoming. It wasn't, I had, I didn't own it yet, but I've since bought the game, um, and played it. And basically Ticket to Ride New York is a, um, a very condensed version of the full Ticket to Ride experience. And kind of the backstory to Ticket to Ride New York, um, is that at, at conventions, Days of Wonder had this little miniature Ticket to Ride board that they would demo the game on, um, and a lot of a lot of companies will do this. They'll you know they'll create demo versions of their most popular games. Well, Ticket to Ride had this little demo map, and it would take players I don't know, 15, 10, 15 minutes because it was a much scaled down version of Ticket to Ride, and people really enjoyed the demo version. Um, you know, they were, they were, they were saying like, when are you going to release this as a game? This is great. This is ticket to ride in 10, 10 minutes. And this is awesome. It still has that feel. Um, you know, you still have a lot of tension. It plays two to four players. Um, this version of the game does, but it is, uh, it's a very compartmentalized ticket to ride experience that still feels great and has tons of tough choices. And so Days of Wonder was like, okay, we'll do it. You know, we'll release a miniature version of Ticket to Ride. And they did, and they called it Ticket to Ride New York. And what they did was they basically scaled down the map to just be New York City, um, the different landmarks and areas of New York City. And instead of placing trains down, you were placing down cabs, taxis, um, to claim different routes within New York City. And the, the presentation and the artwork in this game is amazing. It's, it's set in the 60s. The Fonz, Fonzie is on the, is on the cover, but it, it has this 60s art that is super cool and colorful. Um, and all of the, all of the transportation cards, the, the, you know, their cars instead of trains because you're doing, you're doing taxis. Um, but they're all like these awesome 60s uh, automobiles and things like that. Um, and so just a, a really cool implementation of Ticket to Ride. And the best thing is um, it's it's very small, sets up super quickly, and plays in 10 to 15 minutes, and you can still play with up to four players. Um, and also the game costs 20 bucks uh, at, at Target. So um, this, is, this is one of those other... This is one of those um, other exclusive Target releases that I think is wonderful. Um, I, you know, it, the rules are simple enough with Ticket to Ride that somebody who is walking through Target who sees this game on the shelf would be drawn in by the colorful artwork, um, hopefully buy the game and be able to pick this game up, learn it, and have a really good time because it's still um, it's still a really fun media experience, right? It I say meaty. There, there's lots of there's good choices in Ticket to Ride, right? There's there's, um, you know, the fun set collection, kind of the rummy style play where you play sets and runs of cards um, to claim different routes. And there's a lot of tension, um, especially on this on this tiny board. The thing that I like about it, I've played it a couple times um, with my wife and I've, I, we took it over to a friend's house tonight. We didn't actually get to play it, but the times that I've played, um, you know, we've played two player 
and it is very it is very tactical um the game the game is with this small map because there's really only a few routes that you can claim and there's there's different uh routes that you need to get to and the other thing is you only have 15 cars instead of the you know however many trains you normally have in a full ticket to ride game so you've only got uh 15 cars and you've got a very uh compact board and so it really becomes uh, kind of a, a very tense experience, and it's a lot of fun. Um, so I've really been enjoying Ticket to Ride New York, and I think that it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful release from Days of Wonder. And I think this one may be, um, you know, a really popular choice for people who are looking for a basically like a two-player only Ticket to Ride. It's not a two-player only game, but it works very well at two. Um, and, you know, the full game of Ticket to Ride works okay at two as well, but I really think this one is is tailor-made for a, uh, a two-player experience, but then also a very quick experience for two to four, uh, for two up to four players. So really awesome game that, that I've been enjoying. absolutely nothing and still manage to waste 30 minutes of your time. Join us at the table. Well, all right, everybody. It is now time for the analysis paralysis segment where we are going to talk about the top games of 2017. And by the top games, I mean the games that I have played of 2017 and out of the games that I have played, the games that I enjoyed the most. So basically this is the weirdest, most useless top 10 list you will ever listen to because not only did I not play some of the biggest games of 2017 because they are uh, too massive and tough to get to the table, but also I am a very particular uh, gamer that likes a very uh, particular style of game the best and the most. So, um, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but uh, hopefully hopefully you'll find the top 10 uh, list entertaining and uh, and hopefully you'll find some games on here that you can go and check out and that you'll really enjoy. Um, one thing that I will go ahead and uh, give you, you know, kind of say as a caveat is that I have not played this year. I have not played Riverboat, Valletta, Civilization and New Dawn, Agra, Quest for El Dorado, Lisboa, Gaia Project, Near and Far, Pandemic Legacy Season 2, Gloomhaven, and Wasteland Express Delivery Service. Those were the big games that I did not play in 2017. Those games alone might make might make up a top, a top 10 list of <laughs> someone else. So just have to get that out of the way that I did not play those games. Number one, Gloomhaven I have and uh, is, is one that I could play solo. I just have not had the time to really set that game up, learn it, dig into it and kind of go through a campaign for a, for a multitude of reasons. Not first, first and foremost, um, our filming schedule has been too busy. The table has not been empty long enough for me to have a week or two to just sit there and set the game up and learn it over uh, a, a number of different weeknights. Um, 
the other game that I have not played that, you know, makes the most, or that is, I'm easily able to rationalize that is Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Um, that game is similar to Gloomhaven in that you really need a dedicated uh, amount of time and a group that's dedicated to play it. And right now with our schedule and the way things are going on with my wife and I, we just haven't had the nights to sit down and, and learn Pandemic Legacy Season 2 and go through it. Uh, the amount of times that we would need to. Agra is another one that I have not played. The rule book is, the game is so dense. Uh, I just, I haven't had the time to learn that. Lisboa the same way. Uh, I have a friend who was going to teach me Lisboa because I haven't had time to sit down and, and learn the game. And for some reason, the the Paul Grogan video that I that I watched, um, it was very well done. I just, I I have a hard time grasping rules if they're if they're being explained to me without me kind of really sitting there and kind of seeing what I'm, I'm doing. So I've had trouble with that. Those are really the four games that I've had a tough time getting to the table. Riverboat, I just never got a chance to buy it. Valletta, I haven't learned, taken the time to learn it. Civ, uh, Civ and New Dawn, same thing. So all the rest of the games on the list have just been me not learning them um, just because of whatever reason, just being busy with travel and, and having a lot of commitments and different things that, that were going on. But out of um, out of those those games that I have not played. Um, there are some really great ones that I'm sure would make my top 10 list and may, you know, kind of be added to my top 10 after the fact, if I play them and they, and they kind of overtake something that's on my current top 10 list. That being said, the games that I did play of 2017, I played a lot, a lot of the games that I wanted to play. Um, some of the biggies, I, I definitely wanted to play clans of Caledonia. I played that seventh continent. I wanted to play that game and did get to play that game. Um, you know, a lot of the games that I was really, really excited about, Codenames Duet, Yamatai, Dinosaur Island, um, Santa Maria, Nusfjord Heaven and Ale, all the, you know, all the big games that for me that were really that were really exciting. And then a few surprise games that I didn't think I was going to get to play, like uh, for instance, Shade Spire, um, uh, Istanbul the Dice Game. That was one that kind of came out of nowhere for me. Um uh, games like Ex, Ex Libris uh, that I just didn't even really know about until, um, you know, they kind of weren't on my radar until I got to play them. And then they, they really kind of came out of, out of, out of nowhere. Um, but so I did get to play a lot of the big games. And from those games, um, I have narrowed down a top 10 list that I think is really, um, you know, will really give you a good time if you play these, if you get to play these games. So I'm going to start from the bottom going up because that's the thing you do, right? You start at number 10 and you go all the way up to number one to build tension and suspense. So number 10, starting on the, uh, on the bottom of the list, number 10 for me in 2017 was the Fox in the forest. Um, so the Fox in the Forest is really interesting. The Fox in the Forest is a two-player only trick-taking card game. It's just a deck of cards and some and some cardboard um, tokens for points. And you may be saying to yourself, like, that's a that's a strange choice for a, a one of the games of the year for you. But you have to remember that for me, I'm in a very interesting place in my life right now, where we are taking care of a toddler, um, a a uh, you know, she's almost a three-nager, but basically, you know, we're taking care of a very, a very uh, young child, and we have very limited time to play, and the other thing is, my gaming group, 90% of the time is my wife, um, because that's who I have time to play games with. By the time I get done with work, by the time I get home, by the time I make dinner, um, get 
get our daughter to sleep, um, you know, it's nine o'clock and I get up at five o'clock. So it's like from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. There's no games going on except for some solo gaming at lunch um, at work when I don't have lunch meetings. So it's one of those things where uh, this game, The Fox in the Forest, has been played a lot in our in our house. Um, and it's it's really really good. It's a really good game. Um, I am, I'm a big fan of, uh, of the design of, of this game. And it, and it's very straightforward as far as like the rules are concerned. And, you know, it's one of those games where you're like, oh, you know, this, this would have been easy to design, you know, and then you sit down and try and design a game and it's not easy to design a very good game. It's very hard to design a very good game. And this one was done very well. Um, but basically it's a standard style trick taking game where you have a Trump suit, um, and you have three different suits of cards and you're trying to play a card to win a trick. And all that means is you play a card and then the opponents, uh, in this case, the opponent has to play a card that's in the same suit as your card, if possible. And they're trying to play a higher number than you. And if they do, they win. Uh, and then they lead the next trick, meaning they pick whatever card they want and play it. And you have to pick the same suit if possible and play a card uh, hopefully that is higher to win that trick. And it goes on and back and forth until, um, you know, all the cards have been played. What makes this game really interesting is number one is two player trick taking game, which is very, um, not very, uh, common. And the other thing is there are special powers in this game that make it so, so interesting. So basically every odd numbered card in each suit is the same is the same character. Basically you'll have a, a fox and you'll have, um, a witch and you'll have these different, these different cards that change gameplay. Um, and, and they, they make things really interesting. Like you have cards that will, you know, you may lose the trick, but you'll switch the Trump suit, right? You get to switch the card that, that is, that is, uh, kind of a, a Trump winner because basically, you know, if you can't, if you can't play the card that was led the same suit, you get to play any suit you want. And if you play the Trump suit, you win. So you can kind of be really strategic about how you change out, you know, the timing, you can get rid of all of the cards except for the Trump suit and then change, change the Trump to that suit so that you can, you know, break suit a lot and win a lot of tricks. But the other really interesting thing about, um, you know, the Fox in the forest is that there are also, um, kind of ranges of tricks that you want to win. I think each player gets 13 cards. And the way that it works is um, if you get too many, uh, too many, if you win too many tricks, you're seen as greedy and you get no points. Um, but if you get like seven to nine out of the 13 tricks, you, you get the most points. And then if you get almost no uh, tricks won, you're seen as humble and you also get a max score. Um, so it's, it's really tough because it's one of those things where it's this, it's this push and pull where you want to have the right cards in your hand so that you can win tricks, but you also don't want to win all the tricks because you don't want to get negative or a uh, low, low point total. So it's a really great balance. And it's one of those games that you can play uh, very quickly and you can play over and over and over and over again. And it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. Um, so it's 15 bucks. Uh, the Fox in the Forest is my number 10. It was a, it was a wonderful game. Uh, and one that I think, um, you know, if you have a, a smaller, a smaller, uh, group like myself, where it's mainly you and another person, um, this one would be a wonderful choice for you. Um, so my number nine game is Altiplano. Um, and Altiplano is the follow-up from, 
uh, Reiner Stockhausen, uh, the designer of Orléans. And it's a similar game to Orléans, but it is not the same game. Um, and I want to I want to clarify that we actually wrote an article over on our our website thedicereview.com. We wrote a blog post um, that that dives deeply into Altiplano because it is it shares some mechanics to Orléans, but it is a vastly different game. And there's a, there's a multitude of reasons for that. Number one, um, Altiplano is really crunchy and and really um, I don't know. It, it's just it's just a a really interesting puzzle to solve because basically what Altiplano does is it takes the basic mechanic of Orleans, which is bag building and action selection on this board. Basically you have all of these different resources that you can place on different spaces on this action board to activate certain actions. And it allows you to do a specific thing. And, and Altiplano is mainly resource conversion, right? You turn, um, a cloth into a, a sweater, or you might turn, uh, rocks into a, uh, you know, into a house and the house gives you certain bonuses or, or things like that. So you're doing a lot of converting and upgrading type of type of thing. But there's also this new component to Altiplano where you have to have your worker at these different locations. So the way that the board is set up is instead of having like a central board with tracks like, uh, like Orleans had and like this, this exploration side, you have uh, seven different, uh, little mini locations made up of a circle that kind of go around. And it's this, basically the theme is you're, you're kind of, uh, carting your way through different locations in the Andes and your worker has to be present at the location where you want to take an action. So like, for instance, if you want to sell things at the market, your worker has to be at the market. If you want to, um, get some fish from the, the, the dock area, you have to have your worker down at the, down at the port, down at the dock to take that action. And it really adds this really deep layer of, of puzzliness to the game where you have to not only pick the right types of um, you know, pick the right types of resources to build your, your bag with, because you're still building this bag and drawing them out. It's kind of has that, that really fun mechanic, but you also have to build your resources, uh, in the, in the right way and assign your resources to take actions, um, which, you know, in the right pattern, cause you kind of have this, you know, you kind of start to do this, this loop where you go through and do a few actions in a specific, uh, order to hopefully be the most efficient that you can be and upgrade your resources and get more and more points for the end of the game. So, um, it just, it feels crunchier and, and, uh, a bit more, uh, meaty than Orleon, but it still has some of that really great, um, bag building action selection, you know, mechanic that, that I really enjoy. So, so Altiplano is a wonderful game. Now it is not going to be for everybody. Um, it is a heavy Euro game. It's a medium to heavy Euro game. So if you're not into that style of game, you may not enjoy it as much as, you know, as you might enjoy your, your splendors or your, um, you know, games of that, of that weight. But at the same time, if you're anything like me uh, and you enjoy really crunchy, heavy Euro games, Altiplano is going to be right up your alley. It is a wonderful, wonderful design and a wonderful game. And I think it is not getting the love that it deserves, but it's it's a great game. And I think it'll it'll have some staying power in the long run and people will enjoy it. 
So my number eight game is a roll and move game. That's right, I am talking about Monopoly. No, I'm not talking about Monopoly. My number eight game is Merlin. This is the uh, the big box game from Stefan Feld in 2017 that was another um, Rondell style um, Rondell style game using dice, but this time it was done in a really interesting way. So Merlin is basically this game set in Arthurian legend where King Arthur is searching for his heir, and you, together with Merlin, are trying to, uh, well, basically King Arthur, together with Merlin, is trying to find the best candidate for, um, you know, to, to be the heir for King Arthur among the Knights of the Round Table. And you know, so thematically that's the setting, but mechanically what you're doing is you are uh, selecting, you're basically rolling these dice every turn and you have this worker that can move one direction around this rondelle, um, but you have one white die as well. So you have dice in your player color and then you have one white die. And the really interesting thing is your dice can move your worker in a clockwise direction. And basically you move around the round table in a clockwise direction based on how far your dice says. So you kind of get to pick which die you get to use and when to take certain actions. But then you can also use the white die to move Merlin. And Merlin can move in clockwise or counterclockwise direction, and anybody can move Merlin. So you kind of have this really fun... Um, this really fun push and pull where you are moving your characters around and you're trying to plan things out and you're like, oh, okay, I've used this die to do this action and I can go over here and, oh, I can use Merlin and I can go three spaces to the left, but then somebody else uses Merlin right before you need to use him. And and you're doing things like, uh, you know, going out trying to have majorities in certain areas with these certain uh, houses um, you are, you know, building your castles on this little sideboard to create area control with certain um, areas on the board to get more and more points. You are um, doing certain things like you're trying to defend um, from invasion, things like that. So you're trying to do all this really cool stuff. Um, in, in typical Steffenfeld fashion, you have this point salady type of lots of choices um, game where you can kind of pick a lot of different directions to go. But at the end of the day, it's a roll and move, um, a roll and move action selection game. That's, that's so much fun. That's based on this, this Rondell mechanic. And, um, it, I found it just to be really satisfying to play. I, you know, 90% of the time, any game that Stefan Feld releases, I am just over the moon a fan of, um, I, I played a couple that I wasn't so hot on, uh, in the year of the dragon was okay. Bruges. I despised, I hated Bruges. That game was not fun for me. I don't, and we talked about that in our last podcast, so I don't need to belabor the point here, but, but most of the games that Stefan Feld releases are amazing to me. Um, and, and I have so much fun with, and Merlin was no exception. Um, Merlin, is is a wonderful game, one that I really enjoy and think uh, will also have quite a bit of, um, well, I say staying power. I think it'll be a game that's played by a lot of people for a long time to come, um, and it will be enjoyed by a lot of people for a long time to come. So that's my number eight, uh, Merlin. So my number seven game is Heaven and Ale. Um, this is a this is a game from I think it was from Michael Kiesling and oh the designers. There was another designer, uh, and they both did such an amazing job. I feel I feel really bad. I will, I will try and uh, search this game up real quick and and see so that I can say the name of the other designer because they both did such a wonderful job. I want to give them both credit. Basically, Heaven and Ale is um, is a a Euro game released in 2017 by Eggert Spiel, and it was going to be released. This one was kind of confusing. 
Um, oh, sorry, Andreas Schmidt. Andre Andreas Schmidt is the other designer. So this game was supposed to be released by Stronghold Games, and then uh, kind of weirdly out of nowhere, Plan B Games bought Eggertspiel, and so now they are distributing the game uh, through through or well, Eggertspiel is distributing the game through them basically. Um, and and so anyway, it kind of had some it kind of had some weirdness around its release. But it came out, and basically the setting of this game in Heaven and Ale, you are monks at a monastery trying to um, brew the best beer that you can um, to then basically convert those uh, that beer into resource, into money uh, that you can try and have the most points at the end of the game. Um, and and kind of the way that the way that uh, not you're not trying to get the most money. Sorry, you're trying to have the best the best. Uh, ale at the end of the game, most points. And basically, um, you know, there's this really interesting, um, kind of mechanic in this game where you have this, you have this circular track where you, um, get to move your, your worker to any space that you want to on this track. Right. And the way that it works is there are lots of different spaces that do let you do a few things. Like there are spaces that will, you can go to buy a resource or you can go to a space to uh, buy a, a monk that you can place on your um, on your player board. And the way that your player board is set up, you have this monastery with this, this area around it where there's a shady side and a shaded side of your player board. So there's a light side and a dark side. And when you go to um, these different areas where you can buy resources, you can buy all the different ingredients that you know use to make beer. You can buy... Um, you can buy wheat, you can buy water, you can buy uh, hops and things like that. And you are going to buy these resources and put them on one side of your player board. And if you put them on the sunny side, that will allow you, um, to increase your kind of your resource count, uh, or basically your, your count of those goods. Uh, and then if you put them on the shady side, it will get you money. Uh, when you when you activate those resources, and the way that works is you can get these scoring discs um, and basically score different categories. So, for instance, you could create you know you could collect a lot of different water tiles and put them on the board, and then you could get a scoring disc and score all of your water tiles. And so every water tile is going to score, and water tiles that are on the shady side will give you their value in money, and water tiles that are on the sunny side will increase your rank in the water resource on your little player board. Um, but once you use those scoring discs, they're done, right? You use them once and they are gone from the, the for you from, from the game. You can't score your water again. So there's this really interesting uh, economy in this game where you're trying to get all of your resources up as far as you can for in-game points and you're trying to get your little brewmaster tile as far as he can get to unlock a better ratio for points at the end of the game. Um, and there's some achievements that you can get as well, but basically at the end of the day, this game is all about kind of the fun economy of uh, building your player board and building your little um, your little monastery, your little cloister in, in the best and most efficient way you can. Um, but it's tough because other people can come in front of you and snag the stuff that you want um, because people can move as far as they want, like I said, on that on that little action um, on that action track. So um, just a really satisfying, crunchy game that I that I enjoyed quite a bit, um, and it it was actually nominated for Kinderspiel, um, not Kinderspiel, the the Kinderspiel des Jahres Award, uh, the Enthusiasts uh, Award, and and currently as of uh, this recording, they haven't released uh, announced the winners for the Kinderspiel, so this one is still um, 
you know, up for the Kinnerspiel uh, award. I don't think it'll get it, but um, I think it was really, I think it's a really great game, one that I enjoyed quite a bit this year. So that was my number seven, Heaven and Ale. So my number six is uh, a game called Rahaj of the Rahaz of the Ganges. Sorry, uh, I always I have trouble with the pronunciation of this of this title. So Rahaz of the Ganges is a game from Inca and Marcus Brand um, that has just some really cool um, thematic elements and some really neat mechanical elements as well. So basically, in this game, you are um, you are basically um, representatives in India who are trying to build the best estate that you can to get the most points. And you are basically uh, going to, it's a worker placement game. You're going to these different areas, these different locations to grab different uh, colors of dice that you can then use to take specific actions. And you can do things like um, build out this little, uh, your, your estate. Um, you can go and buy different tiles that you can place down in your estate. So it has kind of a Carcassonne type feel, kind of a Karuba type feel because you're going and getting these tiles that you can use to build your estate. And the, and the way that you build these tiles will allow you to get to certain bonuses on your board. Um, but, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a really interesting worker placement dice, uh, game where you use these dice to take, uh, to take certain actions and there's also kind of a fun, a fun bit where you can use your, uh, you can kind of go along the Ganges River to get bonuses as well and kind of unlock some specific things there. But the really interesting thing about this game is the point track and the way that it works. You have money in the game and you have points. And basically they start on different ends. You have two markers that start on different ends. And what you're trying to do is get your two markers to meet. So that's the end game uh, trigger. And the first player to do that is typically the player that wins, although it's not always the player that wins. Um, but it's just a really beautiful, really fun game um, that that has a lot going on for it, and I think will be played for for quite a quite a while. Um, I really enjoyed my number six, Rahaj of the Ganges. So my number five is another two player only game. Well, I say two player only. It was designed for two players, but it can play any really any number if you divide divide up into teams but num my number 5 is 5 sorry is code names duet so um code names is a game the standard code names is is a game that i enjoyed but it wasn't my favorite i'm not a fan of party games i'm not really huge with party games just because um typically party games are really more about kind of having a fun time, laughing a lot, things like that. I really enjoy crunchy, brain-burning, you know, meaty experiences. I really enjoy those heavy mechanical games um, where I really have to kind of try and puzzle puzzle out and be as efficient as possible. Codenames didn't really give me that feel. It was good. It was a very good party game, probably the best party game that's been designed. Um, and it had some of that, right? Because you had to puzzle through and you had to be really creative with how you make word connections. But Codenames Duet was released and and this one really hit a sweet spot for me. I don't know why. I don't know why, if, uh, you know, it, it was it's a co-op game because you are playing with one other person. And basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your uh, your teammate across the, across the board um, to guess specific words. And they're trying to get you to guess specific words. But... It's really great because you're both coming up with clues. You're both using the same shared, um, uh, same shared grid with words on it. And you're trying to get yourself, your your opponent to uh, your opponent. You're trying to get your teammate to guess 
um, words from the same grid. And so it really creates an interesting shared space, but then also it's tougher. Um, it's tough because you're both, um, you know, trying to communicate, trying to get to get each other to guess certain things. Um, but there are some words that look like assassins to you, to on your side of the board that you're your teammate is trying to get you to guess as well. So there's kind of some worry there that you you might be picking the wrong word. And it's just really interesting. For some reason, the Codenames Duet game hit a, hit a sweet spot for me. Um, and, and Lacey enjoyed it as well. So we really have, have had a good time with Codenames Duet and I enjoy it a lot more than the base game. And I know once again, I have kind of a special situation where I'm playing a lot of two player games, but this one is, is wonderful. And I, I really think that you'll have a good time playing it. And the thing is, is it's fairly affordable. Now this one I haven't seen at, uh, at the big box stores as much, but you can get it online easily and you can get it at your friendly local game store. And I think it's 20 bucks or under, um, if I remember correctly, but it is a wonderful game. Codenames Duet. I highly recommend it. Um, and my number four is going to be my, uh, <laughs> number four is going to be my token Juve Rosenberg game. That's right. I'm talking about Nussfjord. Um, so Nussfjord is really interesting to me. It is a it was another big box game released by Juve Rosenberg. It was released by Mayfair Games um, and Lookout Games as kind of right in this transition where Mayfair was going through a really weird period where they just kind of weren't communicating very much. There was some there was a lot of rumors going on, and then eventually it was released that Mayfair was purchased by Asmodee and they were kind of just calling it quits. And they're saying, Asmodee, you own everything Mayfair, anything related to Mayfair, do what you will. We are stepping down, we're retiring type of thing. And this this game got released that year during that time frame. Um, so they had a few copies of Nusfjord at BGGCon 2017. I missed my copy, which I was still kicking myself uh, having, to, having to wait as long as I did get Nusfjord because... They sold out of those, and then after that, there was kind of this kind of up-in-the-air period where we didn't know who was printing the games, who was delivering the games. Asmodee wasn't really communicating a ton about it, and they just weren't, Nussfjord just wasn't available for a while. Well, I finally got a copy of Nussfjord. It's it's out in stores now, um, and and I've just, I've just really enjoyed it. Um, it has elements of a lot of different Juve Rosenberg games. It's a worker placement game, um, and the theme is you are uh, basically... <laughs> you know, trying to build up your village in this, in this tiny, uh, town of Nussfjord in Northern Sweden, where, um, you know, currently the town has less than a hundred inhabitants, but, um, you know, and, and it's now kind of, you know, a tourist location that's very beautiful and up in the mountains, but people will charge you to come and look at the, the buildings that are left and come and look at the landscape. Um, cause it's, you know, it's tourism now, but back in the day, Nussfjord was a bustling, uh, shipping village and, and, uh, you know, a, a village that, would uh, do very well when the codfish came in to, to spawn. And so you're basically going back in time and playing in, in the Nussfjord of old and trying to kind of build your reputation and your, and your uh, stake in this village during its, its heyday. Uh, but basically what it is, is it's, it's worker placement. But there's a really interesting aspect of Nussfjord that, in, that um, 
Juve Rosenberg introduced with shares of different companies. Basically, um, there's this there's this shared economy where you can issue shares of your company to a common place in the board, and other players can come and buy shares in your company. And the thing is, every round you get fish. Uh, fish are basically like the big uh, resource in this little village because of you know how big fishing was in the village, and and um, so you have fish as this resource. But before you do anything, before you can get any of your catch, you have to put some of your fish on your issued shares, right? So basically what you can do is you can issue shares to the board and get some gold, uh, which will give you some money. But if other players buy your shares in your company, you have to you have to provide income resources to that share, no matter where it is. So if you issue a share and your opponent buys that share every round before you get fish, you have to give one of your fish to that issued share that your opponent bought. And it's this really interesting economy that's created. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the other thing that's cool about Nusfjord is it's not too, it's not too heavy, right? It's like a lighter to medium weight Juve Rosenberg game as compared to his other stuff. Um, and it's fairly quick playing game as opposed to some of his other games as well. So it's kind of like a lighter Juve experience in a big box, um, that provides a lot of the same elements of games um, from his past, but some new stuff. Like he did that. He did the shares, and he did. Um, the, you know, there are these elders that you have to basically feed. These uh, you 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 know you can go and feed the the banquet, the public banquet table, and you can hire elders to come and work for you that will allow you specific actions that you can take, and they're very like they're specialized actions. Um, so there's just there's just a lot going on in Nesfjord that's really good. Um, and there's, and there's buildings and forests kind of similar to, uh, glass road kind of gives me that feel. Um, but just a really good game and a lot of fun combos. There's three big decks of cards, just like there are with a lot of different games that he, that he releases like lots of, lots of cards and they're different buildings that you can play with. And, and right now I've played probably four or five times and I've only kind of messed around with, with the first recommended deck, um, you know, and, and all these cards are all different buildings that you can build on your on your uh, board that will give you special abilities or one-time bonuses and points and things like that. And so there's still that fun, puzzly aspect like there is in so many UV Rosenberg games where it's like, okay, which buildings can I build? What will they do for me? What kind of bonuses will I get? How will that, com- you know, combine? How will it combo this game, you know, with what I can, with what I can do? Um, you know, because you can use certain buildings to get discounts on ships, and the more ships you have, the better catch you get, you know, when you go fishing, or you can build certain buildings that allow you to, you know, uh, get a bonus when you build other buildings. There are, some, there are some cities or buildings that will allow you to get resources when you do certain things, so just a lot of depth to this game, um, just like with any big box Juve game, um, but, but it's not so heavy, and it's not... Um, so meaty that it's just unapproachable like some of his games seem to be very complex even though I think that Juve's games are you just have a lot of choices and they're not they're not necessarily super complex but this one is lighter and more approachable and it has a great solo mode as well I've been playing it quite a bit solo and I've, I've had a really good time so that's my number four Nussfjord so uh, we are in the top three um, and my number three is one that I haven't seen a ton um, of press about, but one that I really enjoy and think is really great, and that's Yamatai. Um, so Yamatai is a game that was designed by Bruno Catala and released by 
Days of Wonder, uh, Yamatai was their big game in 2017. And Yamatai is just just wonderful. It's it's a great game. It has uh, it has elements of kind of a five tribes. It feels five tribes ish. There's route building in the game, and basically you're trying to build a route of ships through this archipelago, this kind of mythical archipelago um, that has kind of an Asian feel and Asian setting. And you are basically trying to most efficiently build routes in this archipelago to surround islands that will get you different uh, resources that you can turn in to get points. Um, there are special uh, special cards that you can buy, special tiles that you can buy that will give you abilities and give you points, kind of a la the, the gins and five tribes. Um, but basically, it's all about this route and network building, kind of the puzzle of how you want to place your these different uh, boats on your turn to gain, um, you know, to gain the most points and, and gain the best bonuses. And it's just, there's one thing that, that I will say about this game is that I don't typically suffer from AP as bad as some people do. I have my, I have my moments for sure, but this game brought out the AP in my brain in a big way. I was constantly like every turn I was like, Oh my gosh, if I, if I do this, it's going to affect so many things. And then my opponent's going to be able to do this. And I, and most of the time this was, this was a two player play. I, I didn't play this with up to the full player count. And it was just, um, you know, it made my puzzle brain so happy uh, to play to play Yamatai. It was it was a, it's a wonderful game, and one that I think is is going to be um, very highly respected in my in my collection for sure for years and years to come. I enjoy it much more than Five Tribes, um, and and I think that I um, I don't know I I just I I just really enjoy. Uh, I really enjoy Yamatai and think that it's a really great game. It has a really, a really interesting, uh, you know, round or turn selection mechanic as well that, that I find, uh, really fun, but basically, um, it's just a wonderful game. And if you get a chance to play it, definitely give it a play and, and I would say buy it, but you know, it's definitely, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned, it does have the potential for some AP. It's a heavier game than some of uh, Days of Wonders previous releases. So it may, you know, it may be your cup of tea. It may not, but I think that it's definitely one of the best games of the year, in my opinion, uh, and definitely deserving of, of a high ranking. So that's my number three, Yamatai. So now we are going to move on to my number two. And my number two um, is going to be Clans of Caledonia. So Clans of Caledonia is a game set in Scotland. Um, uh, you know, thumbs up there. I am, my family is Scottish, so the theme interests me greatly because that's where our ancestors are from. Um, it is a it is a game um, kind of a la, um, it, has, it has a feel of Terra Mystica, it has a feel of a lot of UV Rosenberg themes because it looks like that and you're, and you're uh, developing different uh, sheep and cattle and different uh, whiskey industries and things like that. It kind of has that, that feel of farming and, and agriculture that a lot of the UV games have. So thumbs up there. Uh, theme is right up my alley. Uh, Scottish ties are right up my alley. Um, and the other thing that I really love about Clans of Caledonia is 
it's essentially at its heart, uh, a lot of the game has to do with supply and demand. And this is something that, like, it's just a cool thematic tie for me because, you know, there was, there, there were, um, there were authors from Scotland that were really big in industry and really big in capitalism and, and supply and demand and things like that. And then you have um, this big uh, market aspect of Clans of Caledonia that that is like a big part of the game, and and so it just kind of has this financial cool market tie that that also has kind of a you know a Scottish feel to it that's really cool to me. But at the end of the the end of the day mechanically this game is super satisfying like basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to expand um, and control certain areas on the board and it's going to cost you money to do that you can build all kinds of different buildings out on the board and units out on the board that will give you um, produce certain resources for you and you know you have a special clan that you are given at the start of the game that will give you a special power kind of a direction to go um, but you're you know you're you're different units and buildings will produce different things, right? You can produce grain and you can use that grain to either grow bread or you can use it to make whiskey and you can sell that um, to try and get the most money and the most points at the end of the game. But there's also, the, like I said, this really interesting market board where you can buy and sell goods. And some of the some of the clans have special abilities uh, revolving around the, the market in this game. And it's a very simple concept, but basically when you go to the marketplace, you can use one of your, um, one of your workers to go to the market and sell or buy a good. And when you do that, it moves this value tracker on that particular good. So let's say for instance, you go and you sell uh, milk to the marketplace. Well, you sell milk to the marketplace. Let's say you sell three milk that is going to uh, give three more milk to the common supply of this economy. And so that what that does is that moves the value of milk down because there's more of milk. So it is now less valuable, right? There's more, there's, there's less demand for it and more supply. If you go and you then, you know, you then go to the marketplace and you buy a few loaves of bread. Well, you have purchased bread, and so the common economy has less bread, which makes it more valuable, right? So there's this really interesting supply and demand aspect to Clans of Caledonia that I found so fascinating. It was so simple, and it was so well done that I just fell in love with that with that part of of the uh, that part of the economy. And the other thing that's really interesting about supply and demand in this game and the economy in this game is that you can also do things. You can also complete orders in this game and complete uh, import contracts. And what you're doing is you are exporting certain goods that you produce, like bread and cheese and whiskey and things like that. And you are importing luxury goods, basically. So you'll import things like cotton and tobacco and and uh, you know certain luxury goods. And the way that it works is you are bringing those items into the country and you will get points for those at the end of the game, but you will get the most points if you have uh, the least common resource, right? So once again, the game is all about supply and demand. Let's say for instance, um, you know, and, and the way that it works is all of the players are going to be importing certain luxury goods when they complete certain contracts. So let's say, you know, players bring a ton of tobacco into the country. Well, you're gonna get points for all of that tobacco, but since there's a lot of tobacco in the country and there's slightly less cotton in the country, if you've completed a lot of contracts with cotton, you're going to get the most points for cotton because it's a luxury imported good and there's the least amount of it in the, in Scotland. And so there's this there's this push and pull as well of kind of how you manipulate luxury items as well as how you manipulate the items that 
are produced and sold, you know, in Scotland by the Scottish people there, you know, the, the whiskey and the cheese and the milk and all of that and all of those things. So, um, and the wool and things like that. So it's just really interesting and the supply and demand and the, and the market economy in that game is just really, really rewarding and puzzly and fun. And the other thing is there's once again, a very good solo mode to clans of Caledonia that I've played multiple, multiple times. Um, so just, just from a, a total picture standpoint, clans of Caledonia is a wonderful game that I would definitely enjoy playing. And then finally, my number one is Azul. It is, it is my game of the year. Uh, for 2017 for a number of different reasons. Number one, Azul is, um, it is a, it's an abstract game that doesn't take too much time. Uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome, but it will always, always, in my experience, um, uh, be a winner. Um, every time that I've introduced this game to a new group, they've loved it, they've enjoyed it, they've wanted to play again. Um, it's beautifully produced. It's so well done. Plan B Games is the game company that stuck around whenever F2Z and all of these different companies were bought by Asmodee. Um, and, and they are just producing wonderful games. And they're not producing a ton of games, but Azul is one game that they did a very good job on. It was very well designed. It was very well produced. And it's one of those games that I, I think will be a regularly played game for years and years and years to come. Every time we go down to see family, every time we travel to a friend's house or whatever, that game is one that's suggested to bring. Azul is 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 a, a wonderful abstract game that's so much fun to puzzle through. And, you know, it, it, thematically, it it's really dry. It doesn't, I don't feel that the theme carries through super well with this game because, you know, the whole theme is you're tiling this wall in a different Alhambra, you know, in, in Portugal and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're, you're taking these little starburst tiles and trying to um, place them in scoring positions on your player board in the most effective way. And your opponents are trying to take tiles and, and deny you with what you need. And you're trying to deny what they need and get what you need. And so it's at the end of the day, just mechanically, it's really fun, puzzly and pleasing. And, and, and that for that reason, the price point, the presentation, the quality of the game, um, the fun factor and the fact that it is so accessible for everybody uh, Azul is my game of the year, and and it was also nominated for Spiel des Jahres um, Family Game of the Year, and I, and it's my pick to win. We don't know yet, but I really think that Azul is going to be um, be the winner of that category. Um, so that is my top ten list of games. I hope that you enjoyed it. There were a lot of honorable mentions that I that I will try and talk about uh, on the next episode because a lot of games were just so good and didn't get there. Uh, didn't get their due uh, on my top 10 list, I, I fear. But there's just so many good games and it's tough to, um, it's really tough to, uh, you know, to, to kind of narrow them down to 10. And these are, these are just my, those were just my top 10 uh, favorite games. It doesn't mean that they were the 10 best games of the year. And in fact, like I said, Gloomhaven is still ranked number one. And people are saying that it's the best game of all time. Uh, so, you know, Obviously, it probably should be on my top 10 list, but I just haven't had the time to learn it and play it. So um, those are my top 10 games. I hope that you enjoyed that. We're going to move straight on to our win condition, finally, to talk about the games that I've been playing. And I've got my Board Game Stats app pulled up so that I can tell you about the top three games that I've been playing. And it's very interesting. The number one game that I've been playing in the last 30 days is Istanbul. It is uh, a game that I've played 11 times in the last 30 days. And that is because 
Istanbul just recently got a iOS digital app release from Asmodee Digital. And yes, I do track and log my digital plays. I am one of those people. Um, but, you know, I, I play the game. I, even if it's against an AI, I play the board game. So I log those plays because to me, in my mind, they count. And I purchased Istanbul, the iOS version, uh, when I went down to a family reunion a couple of weeks ago, and I played it so much. It's <laughs> it's gotten me hooked on the game again, and now I'm playing it physically. I'm pulling out my copy of Istanbul to play with my friends and my wife, and, and I've really been enjoying Istanbul uh, to the tune of 11 plays in the last 30 days. Istanbul is basically, um, it is a uh, tile-based grid grid-based movement game where you're trying to move to different locations and take certain actions to get five or six rubies first, depending on the player count. It's it's a race to points, and it's kind of how you can most efficiently move through this grid of, uh, of little locations in, in the market city, uh, in the market space in Istanbul. So, um, Tons of fun, really great game that I enjoyed, and it was the and it was the Kinnerspiel des Jahres Award winner, I believe, in 2014, um, and well deserving of the nomination and the win. It was uh, it's a game designed by Rudiger Dorn that, that really really uh, was just so much fun and continues to be a lot of fun for me. The second most played game with ten plays in the last thirty days is Dragon's Breath which is the kids game that I was talking about earlier. And the reason that I've played that game 10 times in the last 30 days is because my two and a half year old daughter loves Dragon's Breath. Uh, she will come up to me all the time and say, you know, I want to play Dragon Game. I want to play Dragon Game. Daddy, can we play Dragon Game? And play Dragon Game we have. We've played it quite a bit. And it's so great because that game, and we talked about it in a, private, uh, a previous podcast, but um, basically it's, it's a super simple, super straightforward game where you're basically just trying to pick which color of gem you think is going to fall off of this stack of, of crystals. And then one player pulls the stack and which, whichever crystal you picked, you get to keep if they fall off. Um, it's a wonderful game and one that I think is well-deserving of the, the win. It actually did win uh, Kinderspiel des Jahres, uh, this year, uh, you know, from the committee and it's, it's well worth it and well deserving. And we'll talk more about that. Um, hopefully in the next time that we all record an episode, the, uh, nominees and the winners will have been announced for, I say the nominees, the winners will have been announced for the, the, uh, Kenner Spiel des Jahres and the Spiel des Jahres as well, so that we can discuss all of those in more detail. And then finally, my most third, my, uh, most, <laughs> third most played game, sorry, I'm getting sleepy, is Guns Sean Clever. Um, and we've talked about this dice game at length in the podcast, but basically Guns Sean Clever is a game that we were introduced to at uh, BGG Con Spring of 2018, and we absolutely fell in love with this Yahtzee-style uh, uh, roll-and-write dice game. Um, it is a game designed by Wolf Wolfgang Varsh, uh, uh, released by Schmidt Spiele, uh, and it's coming to America in, uh, well, it's coming to North America and English-speaking countries in uh, the the later part of 2018, hopefully by Essen time frame. It's coming, going to be printed in English, and it's just, uh, it's a wonderful, amazing dice game that, that I've played so much. I, I've actually had my play uh count of this game dip a bit for me um, recently just because I've been playing so many other games and having to learn so many games for um, you know for videos that we've had to make but 
but it is it is easily one of my favorite games of the con that of BGG con and and I think a game that I'll play quite a bit with my friends and family for for years to come. So um you know, wonderful wonderful game that's my third uh, most played game in uh in our win condition here. So that is all that I have to talk about tonight. That's all that I'm choosing to talk about because I have to get up early, early, early in the morning to go uh, work. And so I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope that it was uh, a fun, entertaining listen to you. Uh, And I hope that you will join us next time when we record episode 17 with all of uh, the, the, you know, the full crew back uh, behind the microphones where we will have Chris and David back with us. And we'll talk about uh, hopefully the uh, Spiel des Jahres winners uh, in all of the categories and uh, the, the, uh, annual spiel, uh, spiel con that we had (laughs) at my house where we got together and played all of the nominees. Um, so we'll have a lot to talk about next time and hopefully, uh, you will come back and join us for that. But until next time, thanks so much for listening and we will see you at the table. Bye-bye. There's no rule sheet, just an open sea. We don't care as long as you are here. Let's talk about some games.